0: Bienvenidos todos, welcome back to this episode of the Latino Vote podcast with my partner in crime, Chuck Rocha, who I'll give a brief introduction to in just a second. He's always looking for those long, flowy introductions, three, four-page biographies. I just want to the to respect le- I'm due. I just want you, the respect I'm due. I think life. I think it's just because you're old, man. You know, everybody <laughs> has a everybody has a three-page resume when they start to hit the, the time of life that we're at. Uh, I'm really excited about this uh, this episode today. But before we do get there, I know Chuck, you have had a very very busy morning, uh, Mister VIP, wearing red suspenders. By the way, ditched a cowboy nope. hat. He's wearing red <laughs> suspenders, people. He's looking mighty Republican today. I just I want to mention that
1: because he's, suspenders. And where were you today, Chuck? Tell us about it. Look, it's it's the it's the time of year that we in DC like to call Brown Prom Week. So every Latino across the country that's a VIP is here in DC because Mm -hmm. us Mexicans, us Latinos, we get one month a year. And Mm -hmm. as Mexicans, it really don't start for two more days. But now we're like tailgating Hispanic Heritage Month and starting to have all these big events this week here in DC. So people are literally flying in from California, Texas, because this is our week that we normally have that's anchored by the Thursday night Brown Prom That's the Congressional Hispanic Caucus Institute's gala. Now, it's been two years since they've had an in-person gala. It's a big week this week because... President Joe Biden has already confirmed he will be there Thursday night. Just this morning on the opening of the CHCI Leadership Conference, Vice President Kamala Harris was there, and there are VIP Brown folks walking around all over the streets. Now, let's get to me, which is the most important part of this, which is, I put on a suit and tie this morning because Mm -hmm. I got an email or a text this weekend saying Secretary Javier Becerra would like to see me in his office. And I was like, well, I'm either finna get fired or or go to jail, or something bad can happen. So I put on my suit and tie, showed up at the HHS headquarters, and lo and behold, there were Latino thought leaders from all over the country. Real ones, Madrid, not like you, but like folks who do policy and influencers. And so- um, Javier Becerra is a great dude. He's from L.A. I love that man. And he had a, He just said, look, it's been too long since we all got together. COVID didn't allow us to do it. Let's talk about what I've been doing. How can I do it better? And it was just really a great, great meeting. Uh, I really think what he's done there is big. And so I was excited to get to be there and actually put on a suit. And so that's why I got this monkey outfit on. But this, this podcast ain't just about me, Mike Madrid. We've got a special guest today from California. Mm-hmm. I want to kick it back to you for that long introduction that she should have.
0: Well, first, before I get to introductions to our very important guest today, I do want to mention that be checking our Instagram because Chuck is going to be posting some of the best quinceanera dresses you've ever seen from this brown prom. And I cannot wait. I cannot wait to see what he uncovers uh, there during Hispanic Heritage Month. Today, we are being visited by somebody who um, both Chuck and I, I'm speaking for Chuck here, really, really admire the work. Of this amazing journalist is really, I think, starting to illustrate the story of uh, the Latino uh, people, our people, as it unfolds. And to be working for America's newspaper of record as it happens, I think is really watching n- not just the history of the country unfold, but but the history of an emerging America unfold. And to to watch and read some of the stories that come from the pen of Jenny Medina, New York Times. Uh, journalist um is always a great treat to us it always gives us i think food for thought it's always good to spend time with her talking about uh the issues of the day at least as we see them and then um have her appropriately discard them for for better and smarter people to actually cover what is really going on uh is 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 great but jenny i've got to say thank you for coming and joining uh us here on the Latino Vote podcast. It's great to see you again. It's wonderful and I'm really really looking forward to this conversation.
2: Thank you so much. <clears throat> Excuse me. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Yeah. Danny, I'm only, go ahead, Mike. No, no, Chuck, go ahead. I just want to kick off with a uh, a couple questions for you and get you and Mike's uh um reaction to that before I do though. We should say that look, there's not a lot of Latino Brown consultants, me and Mike Madrid talk about that a lot, or cultural competency when it comes to the overarching theme of campaigns. Me and Mike Madrid are really good operatives who just happen to be Latino. My sister, Jenny Medina, is a great reporter who just happens to be a badass woman who just happens to be brown. So I want to start the conversation there. It's like she represents a part of the country and a part of the electorate that she has been covering on her beat for a long time. But I remember us being back in Iowa when I was doing the Bernie stuff and she was calling me a lot. And I'll tell this story and be like – Jenny would call and be like, now how much was this and what is the number on this thing that you did? And Chuck Rocha would just use what Mike Madrid would call Chuck Rocha math. So it's a rounded mm-hmm. number, around whatever that percentage. And she's like, can you send me that number because I want to put it – the actual number. And I'm like, well, I don't really got a number. What I got is this thing. That's a percentage of that. No, yeah. oh, I really need the number Chuck. So I knew early on Jenny wasn't playing around with no Rocha mash. She's like, I kind of need the actual factual number, brother. And I was like, well, let me dig it up and find out what that is. But anyway, your last article uh, was titled with voters from both parties, energized campaigns begin their fall sprint. And what that has meant to me is that it's Labor Day. There's lots of money being spent in writing this article. When it comes to our community, every year you call me and we talk about how I think there's an underinvestment in the community. There's no Brown consultants. They run enough Spanish language. Like every year we do this dog and pony show. What are you seeing this year? That's the same. And what are you seeing this year? That's different in just the raw reporting and what you're seeing on the ground.
2: Well, I'll start with what's different. Um, I think what's different this time, and you guys can correct me if you disagree with me, is just the level of anxiety that people have got at every level in every every demographic group. You know, I talk to a lot of people who are anxious about inflation. People are worried about gas prices. Um, but there's also a ton of people who are worried about democracy. This isn't just some sort of vague academic thing to people anymore. It's like, you know, what's going on? What's going to happen with the future of our country? And I think we throw around the term existential maybe a little too loosely, but I do think we're kind of at this existential moment of like, what does the future hold for us? What kind of future of America are we talking about? I think one of the things that's the same is the topic you just hit on, which is like, who are the voters that people are going after? And like infinitely number of elections before the the people that we're talking to that we're focused on the most are swing voters. And that is often a code for white, suburban college educated voters, mostly women. But I think what's different now is that a lot more people, both in your world and my world in political consultant class and in the media realize that Hispanic voters are also a swing vote and deserve the same kind of recognition and respect, frankly, as white suburban voters have been given for years.
0: Where are you seeing most of that change, Jenny? Is it coming from political consultants that you're talking to about stories? Is it from editors and newsrooms? Is it media types? Or is it just all of them recognizing the math has just made it an imperative to look at it differently?
2: I think it's kind of all of the above. I mean, there's no question that the Republican Party has seized on this moment, right? Like, they after the 2020 election when trump gets all these inroads in different places places you know well uh the republicans seize on this narrative right and try to boost it in the in the press and also put some money behind it they go out into places put money in races that they may not have before put more attention in places they may not have before and it's all this sort of cycle right as republicans do that more and more of my colleagues write these stories Um, my editors get more and more interested in the things we've been talking about, you know, three of us have been talking about for a long time. It all sort of feeds on itself to the point where, frankly, I think in some ways there's been a little bit of an overcorrection, right? Now there's this like a little bit of hysteria over, is there this massive shift among Hispanic voters to the Republican Party? And I don't think we know the answer to that yet.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the role of Hispanic women or Latinas, um, a couple of the unique dynamics, and, and you 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 went down and, and and kind of uncovered and wrote a little bit of what was happening with Myra Flores in the special election in the Rio Grande Valley. Um, Alexandria Ocasio Cortez, of course, is is a rising star uh, on the left. You've got these two very disparate, very unique voices. Um, both with very legitimate claims to their latinidad to their to the to their to their hispanic story Myra, of course is is a mexicana a, a immigrant herself um evangelical christian married to a border patrol officer um alexander Ocasio cortez very 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 different right Come from brooklyn <laughs> college educated uh uh um what what does that tell us about about women, about Latinos, about about how this is all unfolding? Or am I just reading too much into this, seeing too much into that story?
2: The New Yorker in me, Mike, I'm not a New Yorker anymore, but the New Yorker in me wants to make sure we save the Bronx and not Brooklyn. I think AOC would be mad. If I'm we sorry. Save Brooklyn.
0: <laughs> yeah. She would. Um, I'm sorry. Bronx. Uh,
2: I, you know, I find those two women sort of fascinating Examples of what I think is playing out. I don't think you're reading too much into it. I mean, I think we know, I would guess many of us know from our own personal experiences and we know from the data that Latinas make a huge difference, right? If you've got the woman in the household voting for somebody, chances are the rest of her household is going to vote and chances are the rest of the household is going to vote for the person she tells them to, right? We talk a lot about machismo in, in Latino culture, which is for sure there but there's no doubt that Latinas have a huge influence on their household. And so you've got these rising stars and Flores is just one of a bunch of different Republican Latinas running right now who are in many ways kind of modeling themselves after AOC in that, like, they are unapologetic for who they are. They don't sort of fit the quote unquote mold of what we expect a DC politician to look like. And they talk about their personal history and, you know, are, are seen as the party's future. I mean, it was fascinating to me to be in Washington on Myra first week and see McCarthy embrace her, right? Like there was just such, she was given like a hero's reception. And, you know, there was, it was sort of cognitive dissonance as if like, the Republican party hadn't had this real wild history with Latinos, but, and at the same time, taking this woman and just giving her a full, full embrace and really putting her up on a pedestal in a way.
1: I would tell everybody that if there's a way that what Mike and Jenny are talking about, that's going to play out in real time with the epitome of both of the people that they describe running against each other in a solitary race. And let me explain Jenny probably knows where I'm going, which is Texas 15. So the district right next to Maya Flores is the old Vicente Gonzalez district. Stay with me. This is getting super confusing, but he's moving over to the 34th and will run against Maya Flores. He did not run against her in the special election. So that opens up his seat that has, because of redistricting, become more Republican. And it's about an R plus two. Again, like Chuck wrote your math, folks have said it's an R plus one, an R plus four, but it's definitely an R plus just a little bit as the way it's really changed. And so you have the Latina who ran as a Republican last time and overperformed in the Valley, almost beating Vicente running again. She's got the support of everybody. She's a true Trumper to the, to the core. And you have this surprising Latina who was not supposed to make the runoff for God's sakes and damn sure wasn't supposed to beat the moderate, a dude who was a veteran running against her in the runoff. And she beats him by like, 36 votes. It could have been 63, but I think it was 36 votes, 31 votes. And so now she's the nominee and she is a quote unquote community organizer, Mike Madrid. Who does that sound like? She's running because the local progressive Pueblo uh, nonprofit recruited her to run. She'd never run for public office. She runs this little mom and pop uh, small business and she is running to the left of everybody in that primary and ends up winning the runoff. So now you have two Latinas who both represent both of the ideological values that you and Jenny just espouse, who are running against each other. And that's probably not a fair contest because it's not like a 50-50 race and it skews a little bit more Republican. But I will say this for y'all both to react to, uh, because I just look at this crazy shit, is that, I was looking at the spending reservations, Mike, and so far, if you take the Republican House Committee and their supported super PACs, they have, get this, they have $8 million of reservations between now and the end. And the Democrats, not to be too badly outdone, have got $6 million reserved. $8 million to $6 million in a place that's one of the poorest places in America that is 74% Latino that runs from McAllen all the way up to the suburbs of San Antonio. What is y'all's take on that race? Uh, I'll start with Jenny, then go to Michael.
2: I mean, those are fascinating numbers, right? Just an astonishing amount of money. It almost doesn't surprise me for the Republicans because, again, it's to their benefit, right, to have this continual narrative. If they've got all these Latino women representing them in Congress, how can they be called a party of racism, right? It, they just want to capitalize on this and build on it. So it, it doesn't surprise me in a way that they're investing that much money. It actually does surprise me in a certain way that the Democrats are investing that much because in the primary, in Flores's primary, right, again, next door in the other part of the Rio Grande Valley, Democrats spent next to nothing. They were just willing to kind of let that one go. And it's been a big debate among Democrats, and Chuck, and you could talk more about this, right, of whether there's, whether there's a five-alarm fire or something that, ah, uh, just, you know, no big deal, it'll all work itself out, Latinos will come home to the Democratic Party. So it's just astonishing to watch this race um, unfold. I think, I think it is one of the most interesting races in the country, and it's the most competitive race in Texas.
0: I, this is this is really a sea change. As somebody who's been involved and had been involved in these decisions for for since the mid nineteen nineties with with the RNC and some of their new majority projects. Uh, Where we would always say we were going to do this, they're they're actually doing it now to Jenny's early point, the Republican National Committee, Republican apparatus is actually spending money. Abbott himself, I think, went up first in Texas with a two point six million dollar buy like in August. I mean, that's just with Latino, Spanish language media. That's that's just unheard of. And look, whether or not Republicans win that district. If they're closing the gap on the margins in Texas, it makes it really hard for a Beto O'Rourke to actually win statewide because these are districts where where the Democrats need to win 70, 30, 65, 35. Like they need to have really, really, really deep margins. If they're just winning by 10, 13, 15 percent, the chances of them winning Ah, uh, the governor's office, uh, or, or or lieutenant governors, or whatever the statewide's are that year, get extraordinarily difficult. And so, from that perspective, um, it, it's it's good, medium, and long term politics, which I am not used to seeing Republicans being good at. But there's also an element of desperation. there's just the demographic cul-de-sac that the Republicans have drawn themselves into, um, ha- has been <laughs> I'm gonna really, steal that shit.
1: I yeah, love that. Go ahead. It's,
0: it's been so limited. That this is the only opening that they have, and and so of course they're going to spend resources there. Um, it, it is remarkable that Republicans have reserved eight million dollars in a Hispanic district, seventy four percent Latino district, like that, that. If you don't see a five alarm fire, whether they win, or, or, which I don't think that they will, but if if they close the gap by three, four, five points in these districts. They're really narrowing the statewide margin. And, and that's that's the danger for Democrats that I don't think that they realize or if they do realize they're just pretending like it's not a big deal and are trying to ignore it and pass it off as, oh, this is just no big deal. We're still winning by a significant margin.
1: So, look, Jenny, I'm going to give you and reporters right now and all of those nerds listening to the podcast a little inside information if you want to know how good a night Democrats are going to have in the House on election night. Watch these reservations because, much like when you put a credit card down, you can pull these reservations back and get your money back on these reservations. And that's what's going to happen as we get closer to the election. Republicans will, if they start pulling their money back, it means that they are not going to win this seat. I don't think the Republicans ever give up on this seat, to, my, to Mike's point about the Democratic, uh, demo, the, the demographic cul de sac. God, I want to use that so much because they can't, they have to compete here. But Democrats have a lot, and I mean a lot, of other races that perform way better than this one that they need money in. So if Democrats start pulling their money out of this, that means that she is losing and they're reinvesting that money somewhere else. Also pay attention with Vicente's race next door because the D-Trip and HMP have reservations there. And next door with Henry Cuellar because it's the same thing. You'll be able to see how good we're doing months leading up to that. The same thing happened in just up the road in Texas 23 in the last election when they pulled their money out of Texas 23 because they thought Gina Ortiz Jones could not win the 23rd congressional district. So they pull all their money out the last four weeks and she only loses by 100 votes. I mean, she is super pissed about that. Luckily for her. Mike Madrid, she's now in the Biden administration as an undersecretary of something, and she's living life fullest. But these are the examples of what I want to get to now, which is a a New York Times article that was wrote this week about, and I love to give Mike this opening, of polling that may be overestimating things that may not be factually right. It was an interesting article about what's going on in these Senate races with polling maybe over-indexing. And I'm going to get Mike to uh, talk about it more. But Mike, what, and you can ask Jenny a question, is I think what they're getting at there, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that the polls have been wrong cycle after cycle, little by little. And it, and it seems like, in my humble opinion, as not somebody who's an expert in polling or numbers, hence my accent, but that they are not determining the turnout model the right way, and they're undercounting other votes. And then in this article, the most interesting thing, and I'll shut up, was that Republicans might now, based off of this New York Times article, are maybe not being as trustworthy with pollsters because they're more uh, not trustworthy, and that's why it may be skewing the poll. But, Mike, you and Jenny should talk about this because I find this is some of the most important things that are going on with now Democrats thinking we're going to win everything because all the polling is lining up with us.
0: Well, you have to take a look back at 2020. Uh, you know, 2016 had some challenges with polling. 2020, the challenges, I think, were actually even more exacerbated. Uh, and, and, and it's not that the national polls or the averages got it wrong. Um, they got it right. But but the, there's a problem with with looking at polling averages. If you throw enough vegetables into the stew... You just you just taste the mishmash of all the vegetables. Right. And you do get a good national average. But if you're looking for peas and carrots, if you're looking for individual states, it's it's really hard to discern what is happening. And what we found was the public polling in Wisconsin was way off. It showed Democrats winning by seven or eight points they actually won it by less than a percentage point. It showed Georgia the Democrats were up two or three points. They actually won it by 20,000 votes. It showed Arizona Democrats winning by two or three points. They actually uh, won it by, you know, 15-20,000 uh, votes. So it's what's happening is there is a, a miscalculation on the intensity and the turnout with the Republican base. And that ha- that happened in 16, it happened again in 2020. There's a lot of questions about what that means. Was it a Trump-only effect, which I tend to think that it does lean in that direction. But there is something remarkable about what they're calling a bias towards these states where Republicans are actually performing better than the trend lines in the national pollings are suggesting. So that, that is a very serious issue, and it's happening in states right now where, again, there's a lot of contentious races. Uh, Pennsylvania was tighter than what the polling average showed. There's obviously a contentious race in Pennsylvania. Wisconsin is probably one of the most contentious ones right now. Uh, it showed by, the polling averages had Biden in a plus seven, plus eight position in 2020. That's where Mandela Barnes is sitting right now. In Georgia, it had Biden plus two, the final average. Walker is sitting at a, at a dead heat or negative one position based off of the average right now. What does that mean? And then Arizona, of course, is sitting in the same position as as the others are. So I'm a big believer that public polling is not a good indicator of what we call horse race polls. It's not telling you who's really ahead and who's behind, usually because that's not what they're designed to actually do. I I, I talk about about this a lot. And and I do want to explore this a little bit, Jenny. Get your thoughts, but I, I do want to I do want to broaden it as broad as it was. I do want to broaden it a little bit more to say this is precisely the problem with Latino voters and Latino samples, which in national surveys are almost never sufficient to actually get good data. So what the way to look at it is when a pollster is trying to poll the country and you do it with, let's say, an 800 or 1,000 sample of respondents, which is, which is scientifically valid, to get to 11 or 12%, which is what the Hispanic vote is nationally, you're only pulling 120, 150 voters. When you pull out that subset, that is not statistically valid to gauge what Latino public opinion is, yet we rely on that all the time, and it shows these wide variations. It'll show, like, Biden and Trump at 50-50, this massive rightward shift. I mean, you could have four or five respondents skew that entire survey, and we look at that like it's actually valid when it's clearly not. And and I'm not too sure whether it's just a lack of interest on behalf of newsrooms or a lack of of, of education to understand what that means, but there is very, very little polling and very few pollsters who actually have representative samples sufficient enough to gauge what is actually happening in the Hispanic community and as a result we're shocked that these numbers show up differently on election day and the precinct the actual vote counts don't look much like the polling we were expecting. I don't know if you want to weigh in on on, on Chuck and I long speeches there but what do you think Jenny now that we've answered the
2: question? I mean this is This is a soapbox of mine, right? I mean, what you just said is completely true, that there are all these national polls that have been done, and they have this tiny sample size of of Latino voters, and yet it doesn't scientifically tell us very much or anything at all. And yet that has not stopped the spawning of a thousand think pieces, right? Mostly, I would add, Mm -hmm. written by white men so writing these (laughs) sweeping conclusions about latino voters and i i'm going to say something that's unpopular i suppose on a political podcast but i i sort of think we all put too much weight and focus on these polls in general i mean i realize that what most of what i do a lot of what i do is anecdotal reporting right it's just going out and talking to people and that for sure needs to be backed up by data by polling but if we think polling is going to tell us everything, we're just wrong. I mean, we just we saw it in 2016, we saw it again in 2020. Why would you expect in 2022 to think that polling is going to tell you everything about what to expect on election day? And I have to hand it honestly to my colleague Nick Cohn, who really is trying to explain to normal people, to readers, like, yes, this poll is important and you should pay attention, but it's not everything. It's it's not foolproof. And, and I really think it's it's a shame, just to go back to where you started, how there is these sweeping conclusions drawn about Latino voters, despite the lack of data. And I think that is just, just starting to shift. There's been, Emerson College mm-hmm. has done some pretty good right. polling on Latinos. Axios and Ipsos did some good polling. I know that there is more to come from other places. Um, so I think we're starting to see a little bit of that shift.
1: Let me tie a couple things together here. Uh, first of all, you two are like scratching at a scab that is really big over here. That just gets me so irate, not just the Latino undersample part, but we talk a lot about how Jenny on this podcast is that everything in both parties is still done the same way it was done 30 years ago, literally in our business, you can't or you don't at the most top levels of campaigns run an ad without some kind of poll. Nobody out there is making a poll, making an ad that has not been either ad tested or has not been a question in a poll, and they won't let a consultant vary from what was in the poll. The posters and the way the questions are asked of whatever electorate they choose to be the, the electorate that is the most crucial is how the ads run. Now, there could just literally be 1% or a 2% difference in the way that two different questions are asked, but that's the ad we're going to run. Now, that's right in lots of ways. But it's also leaving out big swaths of people, and it doesn't give you real swaths of cultural competency to kind of go out and freelance, to your point, Jenny, about running what you just know was common sense in the community. Me and you talked a lot about Bernie Sanders in the primary. Me and Mike have talked a lot about what that program looked like on this podcast. And I think I may have said this once before, but there was no specific Latino polling done. We would do some oversampling of like three or four hundred Mike in Nevada to get some idea is what we're hearing on the doors the same as what this oversample in Spanish is showing us. But there was an extensive polling and not a single ad that I made was based off of a poll that a white poster, and he was a great white poster, and there's nothing against Ben, he was a good poster and one of the best in the business, but that was gonna tell me. What my community thought about when I had six months, eight months, which again was something very different to introduce an old Brooklyn-accented guy from Vermont to a community who kind of knew who he was, but as a caricature, right? So I say that to say that this leads to a question that I read in your last article, which was, you, you wrote in the last article about, you know, things are ginning up now, it's election time, while Republicans, and I'm I'm, I'm paraphrasing, I think is the right word. I think if I'm using paraphrasing right up, my English is not real good. But if I'm, that Republicans are running ads on inflation and the economy, while Democrats are all running ads on choice or social issues, uh, we'll see who's using whichever method is the best motivator. Now, Back to polls, and this is a question that I have for both you and Mike, is that in polls that we're running, and that doesn't mean my polls are better than their polls, it's just another poll, I just make sure that there's enough sample size, I learned that from Mike Madrid, and he's a Republican for God's sakes, that, you know, that the number one issue is jobs in the economy, number two is education, or is healthcare, like in Pennsylvania for Latinos, and, you know, choice has moved up, it's moved up to four, five, three in some states as the top issue. Before it was eight, nine, ten, it wasn't on the radar. But because it's moved up so high, there's a debate within my party: is it is that the the issue? Do we talk about nothing else? I just left a meeting this morning. With the secretary uh, in this administration who could just rattle off all the amazing things that they have accomplished just through that administration, helping Latinos. If I was to couple that with everything legislatively that we have done to help Latinos, going back to COVID and infrastructure and all things. But there's not a single ad being run right now talking about all the things that we've accomplished. It's just ads run on choice, which again, everybody out there, don't tweet at me. It's an important issue but is it the important issue based off of what Jenny was talking about in her article while the Republicans beat home inflation, which by the numbers today still went up. It's still, you know, a concern like that's where we are today. How does that land with you, Mike? And then Jenny,
0: well, I think what's important is each issue speaks to each constituency. And that's why it's important. Um, It's not that they're necessarily broad based. It's just their intense motivators for base democratic vote, the the abortion issue. Look, six, you know, eight weeks ago, Joe Biden was, you know, dead on the side of the road and everybody was talking about how big the red wave was going to be. The fortune for the Democratic Party have turned, not because of anything that the administration did, not because of their legislative accomplishments, it's because the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. That That was the earthquake. That's what did it. That's what got them back into the game. You throw in the Uvalde shooting, you throw in Donald Trump stealing nuclear secrets or whatever the hell he was doing. And there's this extremist frame which is frightening young people, young women specifically, and shifting voters and and pushing them out of their shells. That is not because of what the Democratic Party did. It is because of the excesses of the Republican Party and the conservative movement. Voters vote against things, not for things. I'm just absolutely convinced of that. Right. And so for Republicans, it's the same thing is they're going to they're going to be motivated on those issues where Fox News tells them to be motivated on. And I'm not going to suggest that inflation isn't a real concern and economic anxiety and jobs aren't a real concern. They are a real concern. People are worried about it. They're scared about it. They're freaked out about it. But it's not any one of those issues is going to cross over into the other party's lines or go into the other party's bubbles. They are motivating their own respective bases. It's why I believe we are going to have the third election cycle in a row that will be an all-time high. In 2018, we had the highest midterms ever. In 2020, we had the highest general election ever. People are anxious. People are scared. People are are angry. People are worried, not just about inflation, not just about losing their their rights, but they're, they're about the very underpinnings of the country on both sides. And that is going to get people to the polls. We are entering an era that is very precarious, that is very dangerous. It's it's not dissimilar to what we call the age of acrimony. It, right after the Civil War, we, are, we had an extended period of very, very high turnout elections. Is The, the fragility of our democracy is motivating people to show up. And, and the, you know, sometimes we say that's a good thing because more people are involved and engaged, but it takes things to get really, really bad before people do. And that's where we're at. So that's what I think is happening. Jenny, what are your thoughts?
2: Well, first of all, in some ways, honestly, I hope you're right. I mean, I do hope this is a really high turnout election. I do think that's pretty given where we are, that would be a good thing for democracy. Um and the thing I spend a lot of time thinking about is why is this an either or proposition? You know, most voters that I talk to, again, anecdotally, but talking to voters all around the country and asking them what they care about and think, nobody I talk to says, I care about the economy and I don't give a shit about democracy. And I swear on this podcast. Yep. Um, Absolutely. You know, they care about both. They, they care about both things. And they care about abortion and they care about immigration and they care about their kids' education. Like, you know, people live really complicated lives. And I think people care about all these things. And I think you're right, Mike. Like, this is going to be whose base is more motivated. And there, but there is this small number of people that decide elections who vote for both parties. And those people care about a whole large variety of things, including, by the way, to go back to where we started, Latinos.
1: For sure. I think that y'all have gotten on to something here that's really important. I was reading one of your articles and you're talking about motivating the base, right? Like I know we have to get, and I'm one of those who have been a proponent. I think that's the right way to use that word proponent. Yeah, proponent of, uh, of trying to get more of your base out by talking to folks who normally don't get talked to more so than spending a gazillion dollar to talk to another white woman who swings back and forth in that suburb that we're talking about here and did i read jenny and i'd love to hear how you reported on this and i should just know this but i haven't heard it and i read about it in your article that this guy blake masters in arizona is literally telling folks that there's a plot by democrats to import democrats in the senate race in arizona is that true
2: uh, yes, I mean. So this is a, a different. We're switching gears here, so I have to think about it a little bit. So Blake Masters is, of course, this really fascinating character. He's sort of what we think about as the new right, uh, Peter Thiel, acting, like, you know, and he has sort of gone around. I would say playing footsies or flirting with, or in some cases, really outright echoing great replacement theory. Right, this notion that there is some conspiracy by some group of people in power sometimes it's jews sometimes it's not to bring in other to bring in immigrants to bring in basically dark-skinned immigrants and to change the country and to make the country more liberal so he has echoed these points again and again mostly in right-wing media um but then gone on his twitter feed and been pretty unapologetic about it you know kind of mocked mainstream media who have gone after him who have reported on this on after them and said you know look at these crazy left-wingers in the mainstream media they're uh, attacking me for saying, saying something that is obviously true well of course it's not obviously true it's empirically not true but you know he's doing that again and again what was fascinating to me was seeing the fact that he's doing that at the same time at a place in arizona where you cannot win a statewide race without having some number of latino voters So he was doing this or is doing this at the same time where he's trying to count on and court these Latino voters. And it's just fascinating, this sort of attempt to have it both ways And frankly, and I've talked to
0: both of you guys about this,
2: I think it's possible he's right. I think it's possible he can have it both ways.
1: Uh, Let me let me. I definitely know we've had a conversation, but Mike. Yeah,
0: I I mean, let's talk about that a little bit more, because as part of your I mean, you're in a great role because you do get to talk to real people and real voters and, and use anecdotal evidence to kind of get to come to a greater understanding of what is happening in the country and in the community. What do you kind of ascribe sort of this rising support with Latinos for these causes, too? Like, what, what, is, what is driving that behavior?
2: I mean, you and I have talked a lot about this. I don't think there's any one answer. I think one answer that I go to pretty quickly is the rise of evangelical Christianity. You know, the churches are much more involved. The, the number of Latinos who are going to evangelical churches has grown, and the involvement of those evangelical churches in politics has also grown. I mean, Lyra Flores, to go back to her, told me she wouldn't have run had it not been for her church and she wouldn't have won had it not been Mm. for the churches in that district. I've spent a lot of time talking to the person who happens to be her pastor, and he is super motivated and interested in politics in a way he really wasn't a decade ago. So it's fascinating to watch that.
1: that. finish your thought, but I'd like to know in that church, because I had never seen it, I read that is is that pastor a fellow Latino or is that a white church?
2: Yes, fellow Latino, if I. And is that church uh,
1: had, uh, they do Spanish and English in this church in Brownsville?
2: Yes, it's a church in um, right outside of Brownsville, South right. Texas. And it is a bilingual church. It's a pretty small church. I mean, I think if I remember correctly, it's something in the ballpark of 250 families. But there's so many churches like this, right? And he has built up this kind of network of churches where he's trying to get involved other pastors of small church involved in politics. And these are mostly Latino evangelical pastors. Many of them immigrants themselves from all over Latin America. Uh, he, if I remember correctly is from Nicaragua.
1: And does he do this full time? So
2: he's a pastor full time, but I mean, the, the politics certainly takes up a big chunk of his time. Um, So I think religion is a huge part of it. I think also this, there is no question to me that part of it is a Trump phenomenon, right? Trump got people excited who had never been in politics before. I've talked to a whole bunch of Latino voters who never voted before. It wasn't that they were voting for Democrats and then voted for Trump, they didn't vote. And suddenly they saw Trump as their guy, right? He was was sticking it to the man and they wanted to stick it to the man too. And I hear that over and over again. And I think part of that too, an undercurrent of that is like this desire to be, not even a desire, a a way you see yourself as truly American. Like, yes, I'm Latino, but Mm -hmm. I am American first, right? That is my prime identity. And this is a way of me showing that identity. Um, I think all of those things. I mean, I, I think there's no one answer. And I think we're all still trying to figure this out. And and I, I do think, honestly, I think I'm echoing both of you guys. I think anybody who tells you there's one answer is mine.
1: That's for sure. I think you hit on something that Mike led in with, which is that you get to see the real world, right? I see a real world that's cloaked in democratic and progressive you know, stuff, right? Just like if you're a Republican operative, you see that, right? But I think that that has made me a better operative. And Mike is many times, you know, talk about my past of being a union guy, being a worker, growing up in a trailer house with a single mom. But more so that I haven't talked about a lot, Mike, on this show is that I grew up in a Baptist church. Mm. I got saved when I was 12 years old at the Dixie Baptist Church. When I was 16, I went and walked down the aisle and got baptized. You never forget this, at Pleasant Hill Baptist Mm. Church. I was on the church uh, baseball team, I did uh, what we called uh, RRAs where I would go out on camping trips with the church on the weekend. Like I was active in the church in the Baptist church. And I was the only Latino in that church. It was all white people instead of some of my cousins. Now my uncle's, all were music leaders in the Baptist Church in East Texas They all went to white churches and they all went to different white churches. there's a few of them that many of the uncles went to So I grew up in this culture now, many of you that are home right now laughing because you know me I have I have strayed a long you way from that Baptist culture wow. in my lifetime <laughs> but I grew up in that church you know because I, I realized looking back on it Jenny that that I needed to be around organization. I needed to be around people. I mean, I love for people to hear me jabber on. I love to be around people. And so being around the church gave me that ability to be around folks and then learn about the Bible and learn about forgiveness and learn about Christ, our savior. I could bang out some hymns right now, but like I, that makes me understand those people and me always saying that, you know, there's a goodness in us, yada, yada. But I'm picking up what you're putting down. What do you think about me being a church boy there, Mike? I'm thinking you're in the wrong party. I mean, the more <laughs> <laughs> Red maybe in the Baptist church. and
0: I, I just, I mean, I, I get it. I get it. But it is important to say that a lot of Latinos going to Baptist churches in rural Texas today are not being indoctrinated with democratic politics. That's not happening anymore. And, and 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 things change and parties change. Right. But the rise of Amira Flores, the, the, this shift right, and I don't think it's huge, but I think it's discernible, I think it's measurable, show that this is happening, right? Demographic transformation doesn't happen overnight. Uh, political realignments don't happen in one election cycle, right? The Southern strategy started in the early 70s. It didn't happen. The big shift didn't happen until the mid 1990s. These are generational changes. And I'm not suggesting that that's happening, but I'm suggesting there's evidence to believe that it probably is or something like it is at least beginning. And I'm not sure that that trend continues in 2022 because of the abortion issues. We may see a reversion back to the mean where Latinos go back to their traditional voting patterns with the Democratic Party. But that doesn't mean that a 20 year cycle isn't still happening. And that's that's what I'm interested in watching. And that's why I think Jenny's work as a reporter at The New York Times is so fascinating because she gets to look at the entire country and say, what is happening? And let me write the story of this history as as it's unfolding um, Jenny, what do, you, what do you what do you where where is this all going? I don't know if that's a fair question. Like, what, what, what stories will you be writing in five years from now?
2: Oh, I I, re- I don't do predictions for five <laughs> weeks from now, let alone for five years from now. But I I mean, I think I, I am fascinated by this this question of religiosity and right, the rise of evangelical Christianity, Latinos, and the and how the catholic church has sort of fallen back both in terms of religious practice and political involvement right like there is not i don't think i think it is fair to say there is not the same level of democratic organization in the catholic church that there was say during the caesar chavez era of our politics right we just don't see that anymore and sort of what happens with that i think is going to have profound political implications for the country i mean i, I am completely captivated by this question of whether we are seeing some sort of lasting generational shift. I mean, Mike, I've heard you say, we've talked about this before, that this is showing that Latinos are just like any other immigrant group, right? Like the Italians and the Irish of the previous centuries. You know, I I don't know whether or not that's true. I'm not sure I, I, I am, uh, that I, that I ascribe to that theory, but it's fascinating, right? It's just this question, like, where do we, fit in you know this country to state the obvious this country has completely been about a black white paradigm for forever and it is certainly a hugely important paradigm but that's not the world we live in anymore and sort of where we fit in in this story in this political story is just completely fascinating
0: we uh no i I, I love 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 that i hope people are listening because chuck and i were in dc last week speaking to a conference and that was precisely what we were trying to articulate to these, these corporate leaders, which is America only has one way of talking about race because of, of, our, of our beginnings, our origin story. And that's through a black-white lens. It, it truly lacks the tools to have the important discussion about the nuance of race and class and ethnicity that is happening in a very complex, complicated way right now. I think it's particularly pronounced in, in, on the East Coast In D.C. and in New York, in California and Texas, it's a lot different because we're much more comfortable with it because that's the way of the world. But the way our opinion leaders, the way the way America's um, opinion is formed, really, I think, is struggling with this question on what is it and what is it not. Is it kind of like what Mike Madrid has been saying, which is it's it's no different than Ellis Island, you know, 100 years ago? Or is it something very unique in American history or is or is it a mix of those two? And and nobody knows, right? That's the beauty of what's unfolding, and again, it's why I'm fascinated by the politics of it because there's plenty of evidence to suggest both are happening, and nobody knows, and maybe it depends. And that between black and white, there's a lot, there's a lot of shades of brown, right? And that's what we're really dissecting. And and it's uh, like I said, I'm not that we're going to keep bowing down to you and your work, but we both, Chuck and I, are saying, did you just read Jenny's story? You read Jenny's story, and because it, is, it is, you're, you're writing history every day, and I, I, I know you appreciate what that means, and I know you, degra- you understand the gravity of, of that role. It's probably why you went into journalism, but you know, the stuff that you're writing and uh, talking about will be looked back, you know, decades from now and saying th- this is this is the record of, of, of the, the biggest ethnic transformation in the history of, of America. It's exciting. Yeah. Yep.
2: Thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm blushing, but and I rely on you guys for guidance all yeah. the time, even when I disagree with you, or maybe don't use oh my your God. perfect... My math
1: uh, is always up, <laughs> right, Jenny, for God's sakes. Okay. So look, y'all two need to be thinking about what's on your mind that's been bothering you that's non-political. Think about that for one second while I say this. One part that we haven't covered here when we talk about what does the future look like, there's going to be a big difference in this next Congress that you should be aware of. We keep talking about this move to the right for Latinos, and that's happening at some level. And does it self-correct, in my humble opinion? You know, after the last next election, we'll see that. Me and Mike Madrid will talk about the facts as they are. But there's one thing that's true. The Hispanic caucus is changing. Members of coming here are going to change, and they're getting more representative of who our community is. Last week, we talked about Alejandro Maxwell Frost, this 25-year-old man. I'm not going to call him a young boy. I'm not going to call him a young adult. He is a grown-ass man, and he's going to be a congressman from Florida 10. Afro-Cubano. Like, he's going to be a Congress. There is a sister, a community organizer in Chicago named Delia Ramirez. She's going to be a congresswoman from the new seat in Chicago. Greg Cassar, community organizer, Austin City Councilman under the age of 35, is going to be the congressman from Austin. Like me and Mike Madrid have been around a lot of old Mexicans, and who I love, by the way, who are Hispanic Congress members who have been there a long time. But every cycle they get more and more of those folks out. I met with Javier Becerra this morning. He was a congressman. Now he's a secretary of HHS. Jimmy Gomez, a young progressive, semi young Jimmy, you're 40 something, guess had a baby. Congratulations to Congressman Gomez, who just had a baby uh, with him and his beautiful wife in LA, who represents that district. But I've just say that to say that we may have Amira Flores. We may have this Latina who wins in Texas 15, but we're also going to have not just AOC. But we're going to have Alejandro. We're going to have Delia. We're going to have Greg. We're going to have this wonderful, robust debate about where we go, which I look forward to. Now, I want to end the podcast with a new series we're going to start doing with all of our guests, Jenny. And we're going to let you go to the end so that you have time to think. But what I want to know is what's on your mind. And what I had typed out for Kenna, who is funny, she put chalked. And I should have said chapped because I said, we should talk about what's really chapping our ass or what's on our mind. And she put chalk dress because she is not a redneck. She's from L.A., you know, fancy ass. But what's on your mind? What's bothering you? And I'll start. And it, that's not to have to do. Just what's on your mind or bothering you? And Mike Madrid, I don't need a 50-minute synopsis because you're so old and angry about everything. Just one thing. Just one thing, Mike. Mine is going to be water quality, and I say this as this weekend I head to the Everglades where I go every year in September to help host a fishing tournament where all the money's going to the Everglades Foundation to try to clean up the water in the Everglades. What we're doing to our water and air, and hat tip to all you folks in California, Arizona, who deal with water, Ruben Gallego told me one time, he said, uh, uh, whiskey's for drinking and water's for fighting. I'll never forget that, Congressman Gallego. But that's what's really been on my mind as I get ready to take 48 hours down in the Everglades and be with some brothers and sisters all raising money for the Everglades Trust. We should take better care of a planet because we only get one of them. I'll kick it to the angry Mexican Mike Madrid. Well, thank you. I
0: think I'm going to put that on my business card going forward. But actually, I'm not that angry with what I want to bring up. I'm actually a little bit proud. And that is, I'm, I'm, and I'm not a Royals watcher. Like I really don't have much space in my life or time to be worried about what the royals are up to but I am particularly intrigued by the mental health issues that Meghan Markle and Prince Harry are are, is he still Prince I don't know how that works Harry and Meghan are bringing up and the conflicts in that family continue to fascinate me not because I like the tit for tat not because I like the drama but because I like the narrative I watched a little clip from Harry the other day talking about the stress that Meghan Markle was under um, as a person of color Right. It wasn't just that she was kind of an outsider and not a royal and not of lineage, but she she this is a this is a, a woman of color who's coming into the, the whitest, straightest lineage in, in the globe and and having her deal with the mental issues that she was. And he made the comparison to his 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 mom's death, untimely death, um, with with when she was dating Dodie, a, a Middle Easterner, um, and, and and the scrutiny that she was coming under. And it, it, this, this change that is happening um, between uh, interracial marriages and in the, in the, the fracturing of society in the best of ways brings about it a lot of, of stress and tension that has been beneath the surface for centuries. And I'm not angry about it any more than I've been angry about it for a long time. I'm more proud that it is finally happening, and I'm proud particularly of people on the biggest stage talking about things like mental health And um, I'm just glad to see that change is is actually coming and that there are people courageously leaning into it and not running from it, hiding it or keeping it uh, lost in the shadows.
1: You're up, Jenny. What's on your mind or what's chapping your ass?
2: Well, not to be cliche, at the risk of being cliche, I live in LA and the thing we've been complaining about for a week is the weather and the Mm. heat, And it's been record temperatures here And I have two little kids who ask all sorts of questions about all sorts of things. And this past week, they've been asking me a lot, mommy, why is it so hot? Has it always been this hot in September? Is it going to be this hot next week? And just the focus on that and me and my daughter who just turned 10 said, is this because of climate change? And I felt kind of floored by her asking me that. I mean, it's not a, it's an obvious question in some ways, but I just felt like completely unprepared to answer her. And it just set the uh, enormous weight of like, what kind of earth Mm -hmm. am I leaving her? And I'm no perfectionist when it comes to all the things I should be doing. I use a car, I go on planes, but uh, just a question mark there.
1: Well, Jenny Medina, I really appreciate you being here and giving us a little bit of your pleasure and a little bit of your time and a little bit of your thoughts. Uh, I am stuck here every day having to talk to Mike Madrid. So it is such an honor to have somebody on here who I could commiserate with, who gets to do so much on the ground talking uh, with regular folks. And on behalf of me, and I won't speak for Mike, I'll let him do his own outro here. I appreciate you always representing our community in the pages of The New York Times. You know, I don't interact with lots of reporters, but me and you have talked to each other a lot, I feel like, over the last four or five years. And it's always good to know when I pick up the paper, I'm not reading about how great Democrats are, how bad Republicans are, how great this is. It's just an honest observation of what's going on in the community, and I find it damn refreshing, and I'm damn proud to call you my friend. Madrid?
0: Yeah, let me just say that one of the reasons I got into politics was because of my seventh grade teacher, Mr. Donnelly, who taught history. And, and he always, at the beginning of class, made us read current events because he taught us that the news of the day is tomorrow's history. And to see uh, the name Medina, um, again, writing the history, the transformation of America, the the increasing Latino uh, community and how it will forever change this idea of America and the American experiment is I think it's an honor for all of us to be at the forefront of talking about it in our own respective ways but you are the one that is really documenting so much of it i want to thank you for that let you know that i'm proud of you and it was an honor to have you sharing some of your thoughts on this podcast and i'm looking forward to seeing the work that you do going forward in the next few months years um whatever
2: thank you so much it's really a pleasure to speak with you both
1: this is a part of the show, Jenny. We talk about how much you like me more than Mike. You, you said that on the phone, so if you want to put that in somewhere, you
0: can put that in. I Venmoed you. I Venmoed Thank- you early. Jenny, you I want both,
2: it, it, In addition to giving me smart things to think about, you both make me laugh. I really appreciate
1: that. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into the Latino Podcast. We're going to be coming to you every week now from here to the election. you got to put up with me and Mike Madrid. Make sure to be a Patreon member. Make sure to follow us. As Mike Madrid said, follow us on Instagram now because today we are going to highlight the red suspenders that I put on. Uh, and going throughout the week, you are not going to want to miss the outfits that I'm going to take yeah, pictures of do. at CHCI yeah, Week. you don't want to see that. There may or may not be a red tuxedo oh. hanging in my closet for Thursday oh. night. It's going to be amazing, Mike Madrid. Uh,
0: I, I, I'll pay to see that. I, you know, you, I, I will. I will follow us on Instagram. I do want to see that. I do want to see it.
1: Thank you again.